Support for this podcast comes from PayPal. Small business owner, PayPal QR codes are the safe and easy payment option. It's all the security PayPal is known for online, in person. Cash only, QR codes allow you to accept credit or debit with everyday low fees. No additional hardware or software needed. Use the app to generate your unique QR code. Customers scan your code with their PayPal app to pay you. Learn more at paypal.com slash us slash get QR code. This is episode number 38 with our guest, Naresh Vissa. Welcome to the Hidden Entrepreneur Show. My name is Josh Carey. You want in on a little secret? I was in hiding for 40 years. Yeah, I was hiding every part of myself in every situation. And I can tell you one thing, hiding sucks. I'm now on a mission to help extraordinary people like yourself rediscover the world around you, connect beautifully with others, and excel tremendously in all you set out to do. Join in. It's The Hidden Entrepreneur Show. Hey there, thanks for tuning in and joining us. You found us. Welcome to the studio. You know you're tuned directly into The Hidden Entrepreneur Show. I am your host, Josh Carey. Would you say that whatever business you're in, whatever industry you serve, that it's important for you to have an online and digital presence? Of course it is. You know that. And would you also say that depending on your skills, your strengths, your interests, you may cringe when you hear the word digital or the word marketing? And don't even get me started when you hear them put together and you hear digital marketing. Well, you have zero to worry about today since our guest is all about that and so much more. He is the founder of Krish Media and Marketing, which is a full-service technology development online and digital media and marketing business consultancy. In other words, they help you succeed in every regard online. And get this, my guest fought his way to a first-degree black belt in Taekwondo, okay, and is the author of the book, 50 Shades of Marketing, Whip Your Business into Shape and Dominate Your Competition. I love what you did there. Welcome our guest, Naresh Vissa. How's it going, Naresh? It's going great, Josh. Pleasure to be on your show. Absolute likewise to have you here. So let me ask you right off the top about your, your book. Very successful. Saw all the reviews. Practically a five-star rating on Amazon. Very impressive. The title, 50 Shades of Marketing. I get it. I see what you did there. My wife dragged me to that movie. Um, but now, <laughs> the, the title, 50 Shades of Marketing, very, very clever, very ingenious. Isn't that in and of itself a lesson in marketing? Absolutely. So the book came out during a time when the whole 50 Shades of, of Grey phenomena hit uh, the mainstream worldwide. So 2016 is when the book came out. The first, uh, sorry, 2015 is when the book came out. The first movie, the first uh, Fifty Shades movie came out in, in 2015 as well. So um, the title of the book was obviously very timely 
uh, kind of piggybacking off of that whole Fifty Shades phenomenon, phenomena. And on top of that, the subtitle, which I think is even more impressive than the main title, is Whip Your Business Into Shape and Dominate Your Competition. So uh, those key words, whip, shape, dominate, uh, those are recurring keywords throughout the Fifty Shades saga. And you're, you're asking, you said your wife dragged you to the movie. Well, I actually uh, read, I should say, I, I, I skimmed through most of the books uh, and read the first one from cover to cover. And the only reason why is not because of the content or the interest. It's actually because uh, I first heard about the book while I was working full-time at a company. I heard the women at the office talking about it. I didn't think anything of it. Then I started to hear more and more references to this character, Christian Grey, um, and, and even men saying, oh, uh, you know, that guy's like Christian Grey, and I'm wondering who is this Christian Grey? Then finally I went to a marketing conference, and they started talking about not just the book, but they were talking about the author, E.L. James, who uh, really is, is an inspirational story to all entrepreneurs and authors out there because she wrote the book from her kitchen table. None of the publishers would touch it. She sent it out to the big publishers. They wouldn't touch it. They said, this is too raunchy, it's too risque, and we've heard this story too much. No one's gonna be interested in this. So she said, you know what, I'm just gonna continue to write it because this is what I like. This is, what, um, this is, this is the inspiration that I'm getting, and I'm gonna share it with my community of online message boards and online message forums. So that's what she did. The book was free. She was just passing it along, you know, documents of the book along. It ended up going viral. People liked it. Women really liked it. And long story short, within a one-year period of time, it went viral. It caught the attention of the publishers that initially rejected her. And they bought out the rights to the book for approximately $5 million. Um, and the franchise has gone on to make more than a billion dollars, not just book sales, but the movies, the um, merchandise, uh, you know, really everything around that franchise. So I think that's an inspirational lesson to business owners and to authors, which I'm both. And Fifty Shades of Marketing was essentially not just a, a reference, a, I think a witty reference to E.L. James and Fifty Shades of Grey, but um, I, running my business, Krish Media Marketing, realized that so many of my clients just did not understand marketing in general, basic marketing concepts, online and digital. And, and I have, you know, I, I went to, to business school and the marketing professors don't even understand it because they're academics. They look at numbers, they look at data, but they don't, they haven't actually gone out there and marketed a product or sold something um, in their lives. So that's why I wrote Fifty Shades of Marketing. And it's, like you said, it's done quite well. I love, I love so much of that. Thank you for elaborating on that. What exactly don't people know about marketing that is so important that you just alluded to there? Well, the, the first chapter of my book is, I would say the first couple of chapters are the most important chapters of my book. Um, and those two chapters focus on one the concept of direct marketing, which we can get into certainly. And the second uh, concept, which I think in today's age, um, the second concept or, or chapter focuses on email, the importance of email marketing. So uh, most people, they don't, when they think of marketing, they think, 
oh yeah, just take someone out to lunch or, you know, advertise in the newspaper or they don't really understand um, the ROI. And, and the book 50 Shades of Marketing really focuses on ROI, on return on investment because all the other stuff, social media, Facebook, Twitter, yeah, it's what people think because they look at CNN and they see the president of the United States posting something on Twitter. So I think, oh, that's, that's a good marketing channel. But what they don't understand is uh, marketing requires, requires money. Marketing requires spending. Um, and, and so we can talk a little more about direct marketing if you'd like. We can talk a little bit more about email marketing. But those two concepts are um, really the crux uh, of, of my, our, com our firm's marketing strategy, um, the side ventures that I work on, that marketing strategy, and really the crux of the book, Fifty Shades of Marketing, and, um, and how to market, really how to whip your business into shape and dominate your competition. I like how you mentioned that the not only the title, but the, the tagline has those standout words, whip, shape, dominate. What does the entrepreneur who's listening take away from that? Is it that you should find something of popular culture to reference? Is it something you should find witty and creative? Is it something that turns heads and gets attention or a combination thereof? Well, that's just what, what you're bringing up is one aspect of marketing, which is called copywriting. And I have uh, maybe two or three chapters dedicated to what's called copywriting. Copywriting is essentially, we're not talking legal copyright. We're talking uh, copywriting as in uh, sales copy, advertising copy. That's, that's ad the words that you see when you drive down the street and you see the billboards or you see an advertisement in a newspaper, copy is advertising text. It is meant to persuade people to take action. This is just one of countless, I mean, hundreds of strategy strategies that I cover in, well, I should really say 50 or so strategies that I cover. Yeah, this is one shade, which is copywriting. Uh, there's so many other things, but I will say, the best copywriting will generate the highest returns. So I'm gonna say that again, the best copywriting will generate the, the best and highest returns. Um, what I mean by that is uh, people are, we are very emotional beings and a, a major reason why we make our purchases is because of the emotion. Uh, if you just look at the news, for example, um, and, and you look at what Facebook and Twitter and what these social media platforms have turned into, they've essentially turned into online and digital 21st century broadsheets, newspapers, where people are posting stuff, not because of the facts. Uh, in fact, I would, I would make the argument, and I have data to back this up, that the bulk of what we, the bulk of the news that we consume, especially on social media, is not even real. Most of it, they're incorrect facts, and now you, you hear this term fake news going around. And the reason for that is because of copywriting, because uh, even though the news is not supposed to be advertising text, it's supposed to be objective, um, the, the bottom line is that we humans are emotional beings and we are attracted to emotion, whether it makes us feel happy, makes us feel sad. In fact, we're more attracted to things that make us feel scared, that bring about fear, or that make us feel sad than things that, that make us happy. So um, that's just one idea. It, it sounds somewhat manipulative, 
but the, the book goes into copywriting and uh, keywords, trigger words, strategies that you can do to implement copywriting to get people's attention and to ultimately get them to take action. Why is it, and I, I agree with that, the news is designed to put us and keep us in a state of fear. How unfortunate is that when we're trying to do everything to offset that? Well, people lose, and, and, and I, should, I should mention that I came from that business. So I have an undergraduate degree in, in broadcast and digital journalism. I worked for CNN, CNN radio at the time. Um, and, and then Clear Channel Communications, wrote for USA Today, uh, have experience in front of the camera, behind the camera, TV, radio, print, uh, then online digital, you name it. So I came from that, that, that business. And one thing that I saw when I was in school that my classmates weren't seeing, that my professors weren't seeing, and it really irritated me, um, was that the news in the media industry, that it's a business. It's not a not-for-profit. And at the end of the day, um, it's about the money, the layoffs, the, the job openings. It's about the money. And I remember at um, one time I was, I was working at, at, a, at a major media company and the, the, essentially the head of the, the company or of our division told me, he said, look, your job is to fill the space in between the ads. And that's a very, very different, uh, you know, that's very different from saying your job is to cover the truth or report the truth or get people to report the truth. But this was in a very vulnerable, unstable, precarious financial uh, time. This was back in 2009. Uh, and, and I think that general idea, even though it was 2009, I think it's, it's really, if you look throughout history, this concept of hyperbolic news, of fake news, uh, propaganda. This didn't start in 2008, 2009. This didn't start in 2015, 2016 with Trump. This started really since the beginning of the printing press and the advent of, of news itself. Uh, news really came out because of gossip. Um, news, news came out because people like to talk to each other. They said, uh, you know, they would gossip about each other and some interesting things would come out. And that's essentially what made news what it is today, going way back uh, through the, the, the centuries. So uh, people lose sight of the fact that the news is a business and their job uh, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, um, they can say that they're trying to report the truth and all that, but their job is to make money. Their job is to fill that space in between uh, advertisements because they need that advertising dollars. And I actually wrote a book uh, that came out last year, and it's called Trump Book, um, similar to Facebook. It's called Trump Book. And it goes into, uh, I, I dedicate an entire chapter to the news media and why people should not fall victim to the news media. It's easy to become brainwashed, especially if you already have preconceived notions. And um, instead, people should focus on themselves and their own situations instead of turning on the TV and taking for gospel whatever is reported on various news media. There is so much fascination to that, and I've heard that before, and I can't believe you were on the receiving end of that uh, at your time in the uh, working at a media organization 
They told you your job is to fill the space between the ads, between the commercials, because the more people that tune in are going to watch the ads and the advertisers pay them more money. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, now I, I also wrote a book called Podcastonomics. So the radio industry has really plummeted since uh, 10 years ago when I got started and I'm very, very involved in podcasting and a podcast producer, because we, our company manages some at least 30 different podcasts, whether we help launch them, produce them, monetize them, consult with them, book for them, et cetera. And uh, a, a radio producer told me that uh, for one of our clients, they said, your client cannot mention Bernie Sanders on the air. They, she, that, that's what the producer told me. That's what she said. She said, look, there's a political discussion, but you cannot mention the name Bernie Sanders on the air, whether it's pro Bernie Sanders, anti Bernie Sanders, you can't mention it on the air. And, um, that's what I mean by the news media. I think, uh, they they have an agenda. Uh, almost every every uh, channel out there has some kind of agenda or hidden mo motive. And the fact of the matter is, uh, the bulk of people are are just so lazy and myopic that they must have their minds controlled mm -hmm. by um, by these large organizations. And it, it's too bad that that people are. I, I don't want to say everybody is like this. But the bulk of people are like this, where they must have their minds controlled. They can't think for themselves. And they find their one news station that they like, whether it's CNN or Fox or Fox News or whatever it might be. And then they're essentially controlled by them um, for the rest of their lives, their, the day-to-day, the -day, uh, their, their ideologies, everything's controlled. And so in that book, Trump book, really the, the idea is for people to take control of their own lives and to focus on themselves, focus on their families or businesses, uh, their, their health and, and all that other stuff and not let all this news bother them. Because to me, it's just, I, I can't believe that the news has caused, I mean, you can look up articles about this. I mean, it's caused depression within individuals. The news has caused all sorts of problems within, within folks. And I say, look, just turn it off. Just turn it off. I don't even, I don't even own a TV. So I, I haven't watched the news in years. I can count on one hand how many times I've watched it over the last seven years or so. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so that's, I mean, it ties into business because it's, it's what I call a, a, one of the weapons of, of mass distraction that can distract us from our full potential. It's so true. And um, I've, I've read that statistic and heard that statistic over and over. And in the not so recent past, I've adopted it too. There's no, there's no television for me, and there's certainly no news for me if there is television on the rare occasion. That's what works for me, and that's how I like to spend my time to keep what's coming into my mind, into my field of view, um, significant. And there's just a lot of un insignificance within that. So thanks for sharing. I want to tie all this together and go back to the beginning and hear about Naresh as a child growing up. Let's start there, if you will. What was family and home life like as a young child for you? Well, I come from a family of uh, immigrant parents from India, uh, quite educated. My mother has a master's degree. My father came here to get his PhD from a leading educational institution. 
Uh, he worked in the oil and gas space, so I grew up in Houston, Texas. So right next to the Energy Corridor in, in Houston, had a nice middle-class upbringing. Um, a lot of people may not know this, but the Indian American community here in the United States is the most affluent community here, uh, largely because of, of the education, that the, we, we value education and, and hard work. And it goes back to the whole news thing because um, we actually have uh, one of, if not the lowest voter turnout in the country, despite being so affluent. We're not involved in politics. We don't really go out and vote. And I think a major reason for that is because um, whether it's the religion or the culture, it's look, focus on yourself, focus on your family and do what you, you should take control of your own life and your own destiny and not depend on some politician who's going to change a tax code or, you know, do whatever. So uh, I grew up in that kind of a background. I went to uh, some great schools throughout my lifetime, uh, went to college, went to graduate school, business school. Uh, but was kind of taught the idea, or, or not taught, but um, was instilled this idea that you, you go to school, you get your degrees, you work hard, you get a full-time job, you work hard at your job, you get a family, and then you get promoted, and then you live happily ever after. Um, and I think that's not just a, a cultural thing, but I think in the United States, during really the, the peak times of, of corporatism, which I think started in the, in the 70s or 80s, that became, a, that became really the option here in the United States. And I think times have really, really changed. Previously, getting a college degree was like gold. It was like you, you get a college degree from any school and you're set for life. Nowadays, it's like uh, companies aren't even asking for, your, for whether you, you want to college or not. Like Google, Facebook, they don't even ask it anymore. Um, and there are all these other types of tests and, and experience uh, levels that, that companies are looking at. So I knew uh, when I was growing up, like I said, it was a nice middle class upbringing, very involved, very involved parents, uh, very high standards. And I went to good schools and all that good stuff. But after I, I, I did a lot of internships, I worked a full time job, um, several full time, jo full time jobs, actually and uh, several meaning like maybe two and and i just realized that it, it wasn't for me you know that corporate lifestyle it wasn't for me the idea of um basically being someone else's uh explicit word that i'm not gonna say the idea of um reporting to somebody and the office politics i mean a lot of the times these corporate jobs it's like you don't you can't even do your job you're spending you're focusing more time on the the office politics the corporate politics and keeping your job than actually doing your job um and then other times when i when i got great experience working for one of the largest banks in the world on wall street um it was a situation where it was such a big big company and i really really felt like a nobody there. And I, to the point that it was like, look, this is, this is probably going to be a very stable job. I know how much I'm going to get paid for the rest of my life, essentially. Uh, but I was young at the time and I was pretty hungry and motivated and I couldn't see myself lasting for, for longer than a year at, at that type of a job, simply because the people around me were mostly um, much older than me and they had different uh, motivations and priorities in their lives. To them, showing up to work in their cubicle and getting the paycheck 
that was what was important to them because they had families, kids and all that. To me, um, I was looking for something much more experiential, much more dynamic. Um, it was really not about the paycheck for me uh, at, at the time by any means. Um, I, so yeah, but, so I, that, that's partly why I left corporate. Well, uh, before we get into that, as the, um, as the young child growing up, so were you a relatively confident and well-adjusted child? No, not really. I was uh, really small, went through puberty late, short, skinny, big glasses. Um, it was just a really awkward time for me. Uh, I wouldn't say I was confident by any means. And then I wasn't the greatest student. Uh, I wasn't a bad student, but I was not a great student. Uh, I would say I was maybe like a borderline good student, which put a lot of pressure on me because uh, I, like I said, I came from a family that did very well in school, has all these degrees. I have, a, I have an older brother who was just naturally smart. I mean, he just naturally got all A's and just amazing at math and just, just killed it in everything that he did. That was not me. I was a guy who, who struggled, who had to read the textbooks, couldn't stay awake, um, struggled and still was a, a decent student but I was not innately that great uh, by any means. So the pressure of family, the older brother, um, and then going to uh, probably one of the best schools in, in, in Houston, um, everyone else around you, at least in my class, uh, was just way smarter. And, and it's funny, it's funny because that school, I don't know if they still do this, but the way they would divide their classes it's not like you, you pick your class, because it was like middle school. Uh, they would put all the smart people in one class, and then all the, they'll basically rank you, and they would say, okay, the, the 25 smartest people are in this class, and the next smartest people are in this class, and then like the 25 dumbest people are in the third class. So uh, I, I squeaked, I, I barely squeaked into the smart class, but I was like, I was, you know, probably like number 23 or 24 or 25 uh, in the smart class. So I was always comparing myself to, to those individuals who were just way smarter. And uh, it, was, it was a little bit difficult. It was a little bit tough um, doing that. Uh, but that's kind of been that kind of uh, moving on to even when I, when I went to grad, graduate school at Duke University. Uh, I don't know how I got in, but I got in. I got a merit scholarship there. And uh, the same situation happened, but I was older and much more mature uh, by the time I got there. I think I graduated in the low, pretty sure I graduated in the lowest quartile, the low, yeah, the lowest quartile of my class. But um, I'd kind of figured things out. I figured the, the, the world uh, out a little more by that stage when I was in my uh, early to mid 20, really, yeah, I was like 22, 23. Um, and I figured things out. And um, ended up actually graduating with the uh, highest paying job in my class. Um, and despite graduating from the bottom of my class. Um, Before we move on to that now, in high school, you had told me you were the president of your high school student body. Is that right? That is correct. So um, it was, it was not, not the entire student body. It was president of my class student body. So it was like, you know, close to 130 people or so. And that was uh, another instance where um, I kind of had to get creative in, in that campaign trail 
because your classmates have to vote for you. And I was not captain of the football team or in fact, I was the, the bench warmer on the junior varsity basketball team. That was my, my claim to fame. Yeah. I know that role. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I, I think I was like the 12th man on that team. Um, and that's pretty much all that I was known for. Uh, no, 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 you know, starting basketball, football, none of that stuff. And uh, I was very interested in running and I was going up against the, the captain of the football team and the captain of the, the, the varsity basketball team and all these other people. Why were you interested in running? What was motivating you there? Well, to be honest, at the time, part of it was, was selfish, uh, like a challenge that I wanted to take on upon myself. Part of it was uh, being president of, of a prep school, you know, a, probably one of the most noteworthy prep schools in the entire state of Texas, goes a long way on a college application. Part of it was that, and then part of it was uh, improving my own social status among my peers. I was new to that school because I switched uh, from middle school to high school, from, from one private school to another private school. Uh, the new private school that I went to for high school, let's just say that it was, it was essentially a culture shock for me because I went from uh, a middle school where most of my friends were like Asian. Um, I went from a school like that to uh, almost 95% Caucasian. Uh, like wealthy, wealthy Caucasian. And when we're talking wealth, I mean, the amount of wealth these kids had, they were driving around uh, Mercedes, BMWs that they got for their 16th birthday. Um, you know, they, their parents would be on the news all the time. You know, their, their parents would be the mayor of Houston or some billionaire oil tycoon or the attorney defending the, the Enron, um, yeah. the, 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 the Enron really convicts. Um, so it was a complete cultural shock where I went from like a working class kind of immigrant oriented, uh, Asian dominated school to like wealthy Caucasian, just, you know, completely different. And, and it took some adjusting and I don't know if I ever fully adjusted. So the idea of running for president kind of, it was a challenge for me. It was, I, I took it up as a challenge and I ended up uh, basically coming out of nowhere. I didn't have that many friends. I didn't really fit in uh, socioeconomically, even um, background-wise, color-wise, whatever you want to call it. I just, and it was all in my head. It, it, it was, it, it, and, and that's, that's something that I think people in this, in this country, um, it, it's almost like a cop-out. You know, this is racist, that's racist. It's because of my skin. It's, but it really, looking back, it was all in my head. It had nothing to do with, with the other people. It was all in my head. And the fact that they actually, my classmates voted for me, showed me that there was no racism or discrimination. Or Everything was just played up in my head because I, I, it, was, I was, it was brand new being in this type of an environment. So all those reasons kind of contributed to my running for, for class president and ultimately winning. How did you win? Why did you win? Uh, really, I think it came down to, uh, part of, I didn't have many friends. And so I was able to keep a very quiet campaign essentially, uh, because I had no one to talk to and no one to, to really tell anyone what I was plotting and thinking. So when I ran people, I remember people, some of my, when I say I didn't have any friends, I had a few friends. Um, and I told, you know, my few three or four friends, 
hey, you know what, I'm going to do this. And they're like, man, you're crazy. You're going up against, you know, this guy, captain of the football team. And, you know, this guy who gets all the girls, he's going to get all the girls to vote for him. And, and, and so what I ended up doing was I, for my speech, I came up with a very, very witty rap. Oh, marketing early on. Here we go. I see the correlation. Go ahead, Naresh. And, and, and the rap was to the instrumental of, I think at the time, the number one song on the Billboard chart. So, yep, you're talking uh, political marketing way back uh, when I was 16 years old. And it really caught everybody off guard, the teachers, the students. I mean, I got a standing ovation after I was done. And this was not like a bad rap. Like I was very smooth. I was natural. It was, it was great. And, um, and so, yeah, I got the standing ovation and, and, and I even went to the, uh, collection chair teacher or whatever. And I said, I said, look, I want to go, I want to speak last. I don't want to speak first. You need to put me last. And he said, okay, that's fine. No one else has asked for something like that. But, and, and that way my opponent, uh, couldn't come up and say, you know, couldn't say whatever he wanted. So um, after after the speech and after everything, he started bad mouthing me privately. But he couldn't get in front of the class and say, uh, you know, say the same stuff because I went last. And um, anyway, is there anywhere I, we can hear this rap? No, I didn't record it. I I might have it um, somewhere in my old file, at least the the, the lyrics yeah. to it. That's right. But. Um, no, unfortunately, I don't. That's too bad. You know, that was at a time the iPhone was not invent. In fact, smartphones weren't even around back then. Mm-hmm. So uh, very different time. It's too bad that, that I, I, don't, I don't have it. So you did that. You go on to miraculously win. It must have felt, you know, whatever that emotion is, it must have felt really good. You slept well that night. Um, so now you win. How does your time as president go? Well, <laughs> I didn't even make it to to the presidency because I got elected and uh, I was on cloud nine for various weeks. I was confident. I felt like a new person and just, you know, I was 16 years old and it was, it was an incredible feeling, a feeling that I probably didn't feel again until many, many years later. Um, and so I, I, it, it was good, but I got involved in a cheating scandal um, that... <laughs> Go ahead. It's politics, it's politics, you know, scandals tend to happen. Um, and, and I got involved in a cheating scandal where uh, it was, I mean, they, we're talking something so small and minor. I mean, this was... It, it's crazy that something so tiny could could derail my high school political career like it did. And so what what essentially happened was I was taking a makeup exam. I heard a kid outside of the door um, talking to his friends about the exam that I was taking. He whispered, not whispered, but he was talking loudly to his friends. And I heard an answer that he told his friends and I wrote down the answer and it turned out the answer I wrote down was for a different version of the exam. Um, and so the teacher was like, how did you get, where did you, you know, this is the answer to a different version of the exam. And she didn't even ask me. She just reported me to the honor council. And uh, that tiny little incident ended up costing me my presidential position. And right now, look, it's, it's, it's high school presidency. I can talk about this and 
big, big freaking deal. But at the time, given my situation for, you know, a naive, um, a naive 16 year old who wasn't exposed to much in his life, the uh, underdog, the under, I mean, this was like, this was like close to the end of the world for me. This was like, you know, there's no point in living life anymore. Like my world is done. This is, this is the end. I, I'm not going to get into college. I'm not going to, I'm not going to be able to do anything. Um, so it was, it was really shattering for, for me, um, at the time when it happened. Um, and, but looking back, you know, those, those, those struggles, those, um, setbacks, they, they've not only taught me a lot of lessons, um, and have helped me personally, emotionally, uh, professionally more than anything else. Um, but you know, I'm thankful for all those things and going through those things and learning from those mistakes and, uh, dealing, you know, really at the end of the day, not even learning, but experiencing those, those pitfalls and, and moving on and moving forward and building that resiliency. Resiliency is so incredibly important. And, um, that's not the first time something, uh, quote unquote bad happened to me, but it certainly did prepare me for many other, uh, you know, pitfalls and setbacks that I've had uh, moving forward. In that circumstance, uh, at 16, when you're going on to become the president of the student council there, when the smoke cleared in your own mind, was there something you took away that you told yourself that, you know, this means, or I'm never going to do that again, or something tangible that looking back, really made a difference in your life? Well, to be honest, um, I was, I was in such a low, I mean, that was something that was hard to recover from. And, and so what I needed, it was kind of a mental thing. I needed a fresh start and, you know, switching schools was not the solution. I got my fresh start when I went off to college. And so I went off to college and I said, this is my chance to start all over, start fresh with completely new people and to, um, to really build, to build something new. All that happened in the past, that's gone. That's, I mean, th these people have no idea who I am, where I come from, what's happened. Let's, let's start everything fresh. And college was what really uh, gave me the confidence and uh, it spurred innovation and creativity within me. It got me comfortable. Uh, it got me more comfortable with myself and with other people. Uh, it was just a tremendous experience, not just academically, but, but socially, emotionally. And it came with its own setbacks and pitfalls as well uh, that may not have necessarily been academic. I mean, I did extremely well academically in college, but uh, you know, there were other issues that, that, that tended to come by. And that's what college is for. And people talk about, look, I'm not the biggest fan of college when it comes from a financial perspective or fr from an academic perspective. But I think the important thing with college is college should teach people uh, how to think. And it should also teach people how to learn. And that's stuff that your pro professors aren't going to give you. It's something that you're just going to have to inculcate yourself. I know that I want to jump ahead to uh, one of the punchlines here. You find yourself, like you said, in a corporate environment, making six figures, a great salary, a great position, and you wound up leaving 
by choice. What first was that environment? What position did you have? What was day-to-day like? And then walk us through that transition of, and now I got to leave and this is why. Yeah, well, the, the first thing I told you um, that I have experience uh, working at some large media companies, including Clear Channel and CNN Radio. Now, what I saw there, each, each company was different or each experience was different. In the case of the, the CNN Clear Channel stuff, um, the issue there was it's like everyone around me was getting the, 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 the pink slip. Uh, they were going through a major restructuring time. Clear Channel had just bought the CNN radio station. And um, it was like, whoa, this is scary because, you know, a lot of these people are upset. They got families. And uh, that was kind of somewhat disheartening. Then when I got to Wall Street, um, it, it became more about uh, the board. You know, this is what am I doing? Like, why am I even doing this? And I even went to my manager on my exit meeting. And I told her, I said, why do you guys even need me? I mean, you can just hire somebody. You can hire somebody. Like the job that I'm doing is, you know, a high school student could do it. Um, You could hire someone for way cheaper than what you're paying me. And then she told me, she said, yeah, we're we're actually working on that right now. We got a team from India coming in next week and they're going to be trained and get up to speed. And then they're going to go back to India and train all their people. And, um, so I said, okay, well, this, this looks like a really high potential job right here. Um, and then, and then the third, uh, experience was at a much smaller, you know, 150 person company, but they did extremely well. Uh, probably the largest financial public independent financial publishing company in the world, financial marketing company in the world. So it was smaller, but, uh, eventually it got big in my mind. So even though there were still 150 people, it got a little too big for me. Um, and then as I started to work my way up the organization, you would think, okay, you're working your way up the organization. Things should get easier. The, 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 the people, you'll get more respect. Uh, that's not what I experienced. It's like, as I started to move up within the organization, things got worse. The hostility towards me got, got, um, got worse. Um, and, and, uh, anyway, I had side hustles going on, uh, even before I started working full-time at this company, it was while I was in in graduate school, uh, happened just by chance, just people, companies contacting me, finding me on LinkedIn, finding my website. So I did create a website, um, and, and people contacting me saying, Hey, can you do this? Can you do that? And, um, by the time I left my full-time job, within two months, it's like I gave myself a 20% raise from what I was making before. And on top of that, the work-life balance was, I mean, I was working from home, which was awesome. It took some adjusting. It took about two weeks of adjustment, but I got into a routine, built a schedule, started focusing more on my physical health, my spiritual health, on just other aspects, not just work, work, work. I had more downtime, more free time, uh, could travel around, vacation, uh, focus on uh, my friends, my family. It just worked out extremely well, and I wouldn't give up, even if, even if, uh, and and there were, I should say, there there were other companies uh, frequently, you know, on a, on a on an annual basis, I'd get, and I still do get inquiries about, hey, can you, uh, you know, we got a position open, would you be interested in taking it, and. 
turn them down because it's hard to it's hard to compete with this lifestyle. Um, even if the other, you know, if a full-time position might offer more money, uh, there are all sorts of caveats that I experience. Um, and that's why I have not gone back. And my company, Krish Media Marketing, has been running strong for nearly six years. Mm. So what is the what is the lesson here? Because it seems like you had the 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 job as you wanted it or or i mean as you could have wanted it they were willing to keep you around there and you you deliberately said thanks but no thanks what is the lesson to follow your path to trust your intuition it'll all work out in the end what did what was it for you well a couple of things first off um in at at the company like i said there were uh, there was some hostility and without getting too deep into into those issues. Um, there was a bit of hostility and I was new to Baltimore at the time, didn't really have any friends. And the last thing I want, when all I have is my job, the last thing I want is to be unhappy about going to work every day. And um, actually when I started my company, my first clients, like when I, when I went all in on my company, my first clients were competitors to my former employer. I didn't have a non-compete or anything. Um, so it's like, boom, I left and the competitors, because I worked at the Goldman Sachs within that industry, the competitors were like, Hey, let's talk. Can you do this? Can you do that? And, and I had already built and established relationships with them. So that made it easier when, um, you know, within one week I, I had 25 interviews or, or conversations with other companies or around 25 um, and that was very encouraging. And then, like I said, within two months, it's like I gave myself a 20% raise. I could create my own schedule. I wasn't really reporting to a boss anymore. Uh, and I was only 24 at the time. So I was in my mid twenties and I said, this is awesome. This is, you know, more people should do this. And I remember telling family, telling friends, I said, yeah, you know, I'm just, I'm going to start a business from my, from my living room in downtown Baltimore. And I'm just going to sit on the couch and make money. And they were like, you're freaking crazy. Like you went to the, you know, graduate school, business school, and you did this and that to get a good corporate job. And you're just going to sit on your couch and expect money to come flowing to you. And I say, yeah. And six years later, that's pretty much what's happened. <laughs> so was there was there some naivete within that or is that part of it or was it not about that at all? Well, actually, um, to piggyback, to piggyback a little bit on your last question and to answer this question, that side hustle is really what jump started everything. If there was no side hustle, I would, I would probably still be working within that industry today full time. The side hustle is what gave me the confidence to say, you know what? Not only can I walk away, but I can pursue this for, for a while. And, and the fallback was always, if this, if this doesn't work out, I'll just, get, I'll just go back and get the full-time job. Uh, because I was not having a problem um, getting interviews or talking to companies and them trusting or believing in what I did. So um, that's always, and even today, even today when if, if something bad happens or things go bad uh, professionally, I just always, I know, look, I've got the qualifications and um, I could always go and go back and get a full-time job. And now we have close to 20 different clients. And um, some of them even asked me, you know, Hey, you know, we got this position open. Would you want to take it if we bought out your company? 
And I said, no, not really. Um, so, so that's always an option if I wanted it, but life is so much more than working a full-time job. And, and that's the way I view it. Um, and I have no intention of at least within the next five years of going back and and getting a full-time job. So it sounds like the idea for anybody who is either working their main hustle, um, and they're not completely happy or have their eyes on something else is to dabble in the something else. Absolutely. Do it on the side. And that's what, when I do, I do several of these podcasts, maybe like one interview a week. And that's really the crux of what I say. It's people look at me, my friends will call me up and they'll say, Hey, you know what? You inspire me. I want to quit my job and start this, start X, start Y, start Z. And I say, no, don't quit your job. You do it on the side. Uh, you know, you don't, don't just quit your job and expect that you're going to get customers and clients and all that stuff. It's a process. You go through ups and downs and getting started is the hardest part. I was fortunate in that my, when I got started, it was actually, that was the easy part. It was, uh, staying afloat that became hard and then growing, which became harder. Um, so, so yeah, for, for people out there, just, you know, if you have a full-time job and you don't necessarily like it, you don't see yourself there in the future, or there's not much growth potential, you know, think about what your passions are. Think about what I call idea sex, where you have different ideas and you merge them together and what you can create out of that. It's kind of like, you know, people have sex and a new human beings form. It's like nobody else has our DNA. Nobody else has our exact looks or what we're all unique, which is pretty incredible given how many billions of people there are in this world. The same idea applies to, to, to business and ideas. So you have two different ideas or three different ideas and they, you know, they do their thing and then boom, now you have something new. I love that. I love that visualization, that analogy. So true. You can, not just one idea, if you have a couple, it, it even uh, ups the creativity and the uniqueness of what you can bring to the table. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that's kind of how I, because look, I'm not, my company is, as you mentioned earlier, uh, online digital technology, e-commerce marketing agency. That's really what it is at the end of the day. It's really a technology agency at the end of the day. Um, and I didn't like technology growing, at least I didn't, I didn't think I did. Um, and, and I'm not, you know, I don't have a degree in technology. I'm not an IT guy. Even my experience uh, was more along the lines of uh, non-technical, more um, like numbers or or like uh, creative writing type of stuff. Um, but I got involved by chance in technology because of this concept of idea sex, and I, I was just thrown in it, and I love it, and I hire people who do know it because I don't, and that's how I've gotten by. That's how I've been able to sustain myself. It's hiring people who do stuff that you don't do um, and, and putting good quality work out there. What advice would you give your younger self? Well, in my case, it, it's definitely, the world is a very, very big place. And it's easy to think that the world is your, you know, your high school or your four friends. Uh, that absolutely is not the world. Get out there, treat everyone with respect, um, study abroad, go abroad, have different, your friend is not your high school classmate. 
your friend is the janitor, your friend is the the, the 80-year-old man, um, the, the, the lesbian woman, um, you know, it, it's just the world is a very, very big place. And it's very easy to get locked into our box and to uh, essentially sabotage ourselves. There's so much opportunity out there, not just in this country, but in this world, there's so much opportunity. Uh, the internet, I mean, to be honest, this, this all goes back to, to technology. It, if, if you and I were having this conversation, we wouldn't be having this conversation in the 80s. There is no Zoom, there is no Skype, there is no email. And the cost of starting a business and the cost of conducting business is, I mean, almost 100% lower, almost 100% lower than what it was back then in the 70s and the 80s. I would probably, that's why, that's why I brought up corporatism early on. Corporatism was a way to go during that time period. But today, it's easier than ever, so much opportunity to just get in front of your computer and go to google.com and the answers are right there to start your business, to, to find your passion, to do whatever. The answers are right there. And, um, and so it, it's just an amazing, amazing time to be alive and it's only going to get better. What a fantastically put answer. What mantra do you live by today? Well, a couple of, couple of them. First off, um, two, I'm, I'm going to share two of them. And I know this is very cliche, but YOLO. You know, you do only live once. And so uh, don't have any regrets in life, you know. No regrets. Get out there. Do whatever. Don't worry about what other people are going to think. Live your life the way you want to live it on your own terms. And if people have problems with it, well, that's fine. There are plenty of other, world's a big place, like I said. There are plenty of other people who will uh, support and like what you do. The next thing I think that's incredibly important, this goes towards the spiritual side of, of personality and of business too, and that is just being thankful, giving thanks. You know, I, that's something that I try to do every day. It's thanking the world. It doesn't have to be a higher being. It doesn't have to be a, a religious uh, deity or idol. It's just, it's just, you know, I am very thankful right now to be on this podcast. Josh, you know, I'm thankful to be talking to you. I am thankful that I'm healthy. I'm breathing. Um, I'm going to get in my car and drive somewhere. I'm thankful that I can afford to have a car and drive somewhere. I'm thankful that after we're done with this conversation, I'm going to eat a nice meal that's already in my fridge. I'm thankful that I can afford that. And I'm thankful that I'm able to eat it and it's going to taste good. It's just giving thanks for, for everything. And that's how I try to conduct myself in, in business too. You know, I don't, I don't I tend not to get into tiffs about, um, money or you said this or you know just getting into arguments and contentions with people because look at the end of the day uh i'm, I'm thankful for the opportunity i'm thankful that um you know that this client was even brought across my desk and, and brought our way and that they trust us and believe in us and i think that goes a long way not just in business but in, in life in general for those listening, if you do nothing else, rewind those last two minutes and play them in loop because really, really powerful, amazing stuff. Now, Raish, do you believe everything happens for a reason? Well, I, I don't know about that. I don't, um, I, when I hear that, people say that all the, and you see it on social media all the time, people posting all these memes and, um, you know, I, 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 I 
I, I believe certainly in, in karma, just me personally, it might be a, a um, cliche or it might be, you know, not even real, but I think it's a good way to live life just to do good and to do well. I mean, essentially karma comes down to this, this buzzword that people are using now called the law of attraction. The law of attraction essentially says that you are what you attract. So if you attract, you know, good people who are going to take care of you, well, it's likely because you're a good person and you take care of those people. If you attract um, nobody, you know, then it's probably because you're a nobody. If you attract uh, bad gangsters, well, it's probably because you're a bad gangster. Um, so the law of attraction, I think, is a better way to put it than, uh, you know, everything happens for a reason. I think people, like I mentioned earlier, should just do their best to maximize their lives and their, their daily lives. Um, everything that they do, just try to maximize it. You only live once, you know, just kind of um, summarizing what I said earlier. And yeah, things are going to happen. Things are definitely going to happen, good things and bad things. And whether they happen for a reason, I'm not sure, but it's important to, as Winston Churchill once said, when you're going through hell, just keep going. Mm. Are you spiritual or religious in any ways? Yes. So I brought up the spirituality. To me, spirituality is, is giving thanks. That's really all it is. It's giving thanks, not just to people, but to just your situation. It doesn't have to be a higher being, a Lord, a God, uh, an idol or anything like that. Now, I happen to be religious. Um, so uh, maybe my spirituality comes from my religion. I have no idea. I do yoga. I meditate. I pray. Um, I go to the temple. I've gone on pilgrimages, religious pilgrimages. I've got some great pictures from, from some awesome, awesome places. Um, and I even have a, a set of friends who I consider my, my spiritual friends or my religious friends. So um, I happen to be like that. But not everyone's like that um, on the religion side. Uh, but I think spirituality, people, they don't understand. A lot of people don't understand what spirituality is. They think spirituality is what I just said, you know, going on these pilgrimages and praying and talking to God, believing in God. Absolutely not. In fact, I would say some of the most spiritual people I know are atheists um, who don't believe in, in any of that stuff. So, so spirituality means much, much more than, than religion. Spirituality is essentially getting in touch with yourself and who you are, being comfortable with yourself, with yourselves. But on top of that, most importantly, being thankful and giving thanks. Mm. Magnificent. What do you believe happens when it's all over, when our time here on earth comes to an end? Well, um, that's a really tough question to answer, obviously, because none of us know. Uh, I come from a religion that believes in reincarnation. And so I brought up this, this concept of, of karma and uh, the path to enlightenment, and what we call moksha and all sorts of things. And look, to be honest, I personally, I don't take all of that too seriously. I take karma seriously because of the law of attraction. And because I just believe in the goodness of giving thanks and the goodness of, of being nice to people and helping people. So um, when it comes to what's going to happen to us when we're, when we're dead, I can't, I can't answer that fully. I just hope that I leave uh, a very, very strong 
uh, legacy for those who follow me uh, in my lineage, whether it's um, you know good values, good principles, or uh, financially speaking, um, leaving leaving money behind, which is is likely going to happen because I have life ins- uh, life insurance policy. Um, but but you know I, I I think some people get caught up with all that of you know this is this is what I have to do because of the afterlife. And I'm not one to to live my life um, worrying about that on a on a regular. That's just me. That's just me personally. I choose to live uh, preferably in the moment and to plan for the future accordingly. I will leave you with this final question, Naresh Visa. How would you like to be remembered? Well, <laughs> um. I can tell you what I'd like, but I'd tell you what, how I feel about this question. So, of course, I think every, you're going to get the same answer from everybody. I'd like to be remembered as a good person, as somebody who did good things. Uh, that's probably the standard answer that you're going to get. But to me, um, I don't think we can think of those terms of, uh, in fact, it, I, don't, I don't think we should live our lives playing to those terms of, getting other people to like us or doing things for other people just so they'll like us. I think we should continue to pursue um, our interests, our passions, take care of ourselves, take care of our families, our kids, focus on all of that stuff. And then you just let the free market decide how they want to remember you. It's not up to us how we want to be remembered. We'll just leave that up to the free market. And if it's good, awesome. If it's not good, well, at least I know that I've lived my life to its, to its full potential and I've maximized everything that I could do. Well, you are absolutely correct. I have never heard the answer quite like that. And um, I appreciate that. Thank you for um, spelling that out. It's just, it's just absolutely magnificent. What I would like to say is here we are, 50 shades of narration. My goodness, thank you for showing up, right? Maybe that's, the, maybe that's your biography. Who knows? Your autobiography. <laughs> Why wouldn't it be? Literally 50 shades of narration. What a theme. What a dialogue. And my goodness, what a person you are. Thank you kindly for showing up and opening up today. Well, you just gave me another idea, Josh. I really appreciate it. And really, this, is, this has been one of the great interviews that I've done. Like I said, I do one of these every week or so maybe every few weeks. And I love, I do a lot of interviews where it's just, tell me about your business. Tell me how you make money. Tell me about digital marketing. Tell me about this. Tell me about that. And I love talking about these other topics, especially these spiritually inclined topics that affect our professional lives and our business lives and money on a day-to-day basis. People don't take these topics seriously. And I hope that I was able to share uh, you know, my lifestyle my beliefs, my opinions with your listeners and with you, and that it'll help them moving forward. Well, thank you for pointing that out. You have found me out. I love hearing it spelled back from uh, a great guest like yourself. So thank you. That's exactly what I'm going for. And I'm glad together we have achieved this. Of course, the circle is not complete until you listening have listened. So I want to thank you for spending your time. If there was something that motivated you, inspired you, got you thinking, do something with it. Take one small action, put something into place or else nothing 
changes. Again, I am honored to have you spend your time with us today. We'll do it again real soon. Until we do, do the good work and go get them. Thanks for listening to The Hidden Entrepreneur Show. Make sure to subscribe through iTunes or Google Play so you can get notified every time we publish a new episode. And we'd love to hear your thoughts with an honest review on iTunes. Finally, follow us on your favorite social media platforms to keep the conversation going with Josh Carey and today's guest. Until next time. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.